Here in Matthew 18, Jesus presents the sermon about kingdom values. And the sermon is motivated by the disciples' argument between themselves over who was greatest in God's kingdom. And this argument, this debate over greatness, revealed their self-serving spirit. And as well, a wrong view of God's kingdom. Now they were under the false assumption that God's kingdom was no different from the world's kingdoms. Now whereas the world's kingdoms are status-driven, God's kingdom is distinct because it is service-driven. So the world's kingdoms are driven by status. God's kingdom is driven by service. So Jesus went on to outline five fundamental values that kingdom citizens, you and I, ought to embrace in our day-to-day living with one another. Those five values are this. Number one, humility. Number two, guarding against sin. Number three, pursuing the lost. Number four, discipline. And number five, forgiveness. Now these values are fundamental. They're basic. They're essential because they govern our relationships with one another in God's kingdom, which currently is the church. So these values of humility and guarding against sin, pursuing the lost, discipline and forgiveness are all values that govern our relationship with one another. And it is sad that these five qualities are at best lacking. They're lacking. And at worst, they're lost in the modern local church. Now in Matthew 18, verses 1 to 4, Jesus set forth the value of humility. Humility, tapanao, means to place oneself in a lower condition. It is a posture of subordination or submission of oneself to someone else. And for you and I as kingdom citizens, humility begins as submission to God. Submission to God. Now, submission to God begins by us confessing our sins and realizing our unworthiness in receiving God's grace. Ephesians 2.8 says, By grace you have been saved through faith. But to that we must add James chapter 4 and verse 6 that says, God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble. So when we read that we've been saved by grace, we need to understand that we only receive that grace on the basis that we have first humbled ourselves and repented of our sins. Humility is also service to God and one another. So humility is not only submission to God, it is service to God and one another. As the Apostle Paul says, we ought to be serving the Lord with all humility. Serving the Lord with all submission to Him. Acts 20.19 Likewise in Philippians chapter 2 and verses 3 and 4, Paul admonished believers, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. You see, humility, my friends, is regarding the other person as more important than yourself and looking out for their interest over yours. Now, that's not to say you can't look out for your interest. You should. But you must be more concerned with the interest of others. That's humility. Now, the second value that we need to recover and embrace as kingdom citizens 
is the value of guarding against sin. We need to guard against sin as presented here in Matthew 18, verses 5 to 9. Now, just as humility is valuable in maintaining a harmonious relationship amongst one another, so is guarding against sin. Just as we need to be humble in our dealings with one another, so we must guard against sin with one another. Why? Because sin will damage and destroy our relationship not only with God, but with others. Sin will create, amongst other things, bitterness, distrust, guilt, and hostility amongst fellow believers. And therefore, Jesus enunciates here, in verses 5 to 9 of Matthew 18, that we as believers must guard ourselves from sin, and we must guard ourselves from causing others to sin. Causing others to sin. Now, you're probably sitting there thinking, Pastor, I've never caused somebody else to sin. Well, I would challenge you to put your seatbelt on and hold on tight. Because when we get to that section, it would behoove all of us to examine ourselves, especially when we look at four ways in which we could possibly cause someone to sin. Now let's begin in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 5. In Matthew 18 verse 5, Jesus sets forth the means of guarding against sin. And that first means of guarding against sin is by receiving others as Christ. We guard against sin by receiving others as Christ. Look at verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Let me read again. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Now remember back in verse 2, Jesus called a child to himself and set him, set that child before the disciples. Now the child, the pation, set before the disciples was probably a toddler. A very small child. And Jesus used that toddler to illustrate how we as believers ought to behave. First and foremost, with humility. In verse 3, Jesus said that we need to go on and be converted and become like children. Again, he's speaking to believers. He's speaking to the disciples. There's no quote-unquote unregenerate people here. Everybody in this room is, has professed to be a believer. And Jesus' point was to the disciples that you must humbly repent of your sin and believe the gospel with childlike faith in order to be saved. We know that God adopts into His family those who repent. And those who repent and believe the gospel, He adopts as His spiritual children. John chapter 1 and verse 12 says, As many as received Him, to them He gave the power, the right, the ability to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. Now, as in verse 2 and verse 4, the term child, pation, refers to a toddler or small child. However, notice here in verse 5, Jesus does not use the term child here, pation, to refer to the physical child. Here He's using the term child to refer to those spiritual children of the Heavenly Father, i.e. genuine believers. He's already told us previously in verse 2, 3, and 4, we need to be like children, children of God. Now, he's speaking to us as children of God. As God's spiritual children, we must be childlike. We must humbly submit to and depend upon Him, our Heavenly Father. Now, as I said last week, and I'll remind you again, while we're to be childlike, we're not to be childish. Okay? 
Childish would be to be act proud or arrogant or conceited. Those things ought not be. Now notice in verse 5, He who receives a child receives me. Both verbs translated as receives, it's the Greek word dekamai, means to accept or welcome someone into one's company or one's family. To welcome someone into one's family. To receive one such child means this, infers this. Like a gracious host, believers, each and every one of you, are to accept and provide for the needs of other believers lovingly and graciously. That's what it means to receive another believer. Okay. In other words, let me put it another way. Treat each other like family. Okay. Now notice here, in my name. That phrase can be rendered this way. Treat them as though he were me. In other words, we need to accept other believers. We need to welcome other believers as though they were Jesus himself. Now remember, this is the first means of guarding against sin. And you're scratching your head and we're, you know, you're wondering, well, how does this guard me against sin? You'll see in a moment. We'll see the connective tissue begin to develop here. Now, Jesus says that when you lovingly accept and provide for the needs of others, other believers, as if they were Christ, you are receiving Christ. In other words, by treating them as if they were Jesus, you're ultimately extending the same treatment to Jesus. Let me put it another way. The way you treat another brother or sister in Christ is the way you're treating Jesus. Matthew 25, 35 to 40. Let's turn over there for a moment. Because Jesus is going to explain this. Now we're going to come back to that verse when we get to that final sermon. And we're going to develop this a little more thoroughly. But Jesus gives a good explanation of what he just said. The way you treat another believer is the way you're treating me. And I'd like you to see what Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 25, verses 35 to 40. He says, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous answered and said, Lord, when did we see you hungry? When did we feed you? When were you thirsty? When did we give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? When were you naked and we clothed you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say, Truly I say, now listen carefully, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, even to the smallest of them, you did it to me. Let that sink in for a moment. As you treat God's children, or as you treat Jesus' brethren, so you are treating Jesus. Well, Pastor, you don't understand. This, this quote-unquote brother or sister just annoys me. I'll say amen to that. Because some people annoy me. Here's the point. 
regardless of whether they irritate us or annoy us, we're to treat them, what? As if they were Jesus himself. That's his point. Okay? Whether they're mature or immature, strong or weak, every believer is to be treated as if they're Jesus. So ask yourself, how do I treat others? Not how do you treat the people you like. How do you treat those brothers or sisters that just rub you wrong? Okay? How do you treat them? And listen, if you don't think believers rub each other wrong, you haven't spent time with the 12 disciples. Because those guys rubbed each other wrong all the time. They're having a debate. They're having an argument here amongst themselves over who's the greatest. Do you treat other believers, especially the immature, the weak, the irritating ones, the same way you would treat Jesus if he were physically present in the room? And here's the point. If we genuinely treat others as if they were Jesus, we would not be quick to sin against them or to lead them into sin. Okay? The way you treat them may be causing them to sin. Well, how how is that? Well, look at Peter, James, and John. They had this transfiguration experience, and what did they do? They came back proudly boasting what they had seen and experienced. So much so that the other nine became jealous and envious. Who caused them to sin with jealousy and envy? Peter, James, and John. Now, they didn't deliberately tempt them to sin, but indirectly their behavior, because they didn't treat the other nine as Jesus would, caused them to sin. We guard against sin by treating one another or receiving one another, welcoming one another as Christ. Let's move on to verse 6 and 7. In Matthew 18, verse 6 and 7, Jesus sets forth the second means of guarding ourselves against sin. We guard against sin by remembering the consequence. We need to remember the consequence. Let's read verse 6 and 7. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and be, to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. It's inevitable that stumbling blocks come. But woe to the man through whom the stumbling block comes. We guard against sin by remembering the consequence. We need to remember the consequence. Now Jesus begins his warning here by saying, Anyone who causes one of these little ones to be, who believe in me to stumble. The term little ones, mikros, is a synonym for little children. Okay, So this is just another way of saying little children. Mikros, little ones. And who is he talking about here? The child on his lap? No, he's talking about believers. You and I who are God's spiritual children. Notice the verb, causes to stumble. It's that Greek word, skandalizo, from which we get our English term scandal. And it means to create an occasion for someone to sin. Whoever causes one of my spiritual children to sin. Okay, that, that's a very direct interpretation. 
Now, I also want you to think about the word scandalizo because it actually means to snare or to set a trap. Now, what is a snare? A snare is a small trap or cage that a hunter uses to capture an animal stealthily. Now, in the Jewish culture, most hunting was done with snares or with traps. And they done it in this manner because of the dietary restrictions. Okay? See, the law forbid them from eating anything unclean. All, all animals they ate had to be kosher or clean. And that also meant that even a clean animal could become defiled if the blood wasn't properly drained. So in order to ensure that the blood was properly drained from the animal, they would trap the animal and then slaughter it so that the blood would be properly removed. Now, setting a snare or a trap or baiting a trap to catch an animal is acceptable before God. Okay? God, there, there's nothing in the scriptures that says hunting with a snare is unethical. Okay? You're capturing or trapping an animal. But in Jewish culture... The snare, and that's how Jesus is using it here, was also used as a picture for deceitfulness. How does a snare typify deceitfulness or deceptiveness? Because the trap or the snare is hidden and baited in such a way to convince the animal that it is safe when indeed it is not. Okay, You're duping, you're tricking that animal into thinking this is safe. Okay, Now there's nothing immoral about that. Okay? Nothing immoral in that. What is immoral, though, is to trap or bait a fellow believer into a situation that they assume is safe when it is not. Now, that would be immoral. And so Jesus is taking that picture from hunting and applying it here. You know, we must, as believers, we, you and I must not only be aware of the flaming arrows of the evil one, as Paul warns us of in Ephesians 6 and verse 16, but we also must be aware, we must be on the lookout for the hidden traps, the snares placed by our fellow believers. Hmm. Think about that. Looking around the room, has anyone here ever set a trap for another believer? Has anyone here ever snared another believer because of their sin? Do not entice, do not draw another believer, don't push another believer into the trap of sin. Now let's apply the principle of verse 5. He who receives these little children in my name receives me. Let's take the principle and apply it here. If you entice another believer to sin, you are guilty of enticing Jesus to sin. If you provoke another believer to sin, you're guilty of provoking Jesus to sin. Now, obviously, Jesus can't sin. That's not the point. The point is, you're tempting Jesus. Wow. Now, that ought to slow me down. It ought to slow us down, you down. That when we go on sinning, it's not just us. We've got to be concerned about the other person. Because as I do to them, I'm doing to him. Now for those believers guilty of enticing another believer to sin, Jesus says, it'd be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. So if you're living over in Israel, you would go to the local community mill, you would take your grain to the mill for it to be ground in the flour. Now when you got there, there would be two types of millstones. 
a lower millstone and an upper millstone. The lower millstone you could easily push by hand. You have a small amount of grain, you can put it in there and grind it down to flour, no problem. But if you have a large amount of grain, you need the heavier millstone, and then you're going to need a beast of burden to turn the heavier millstone. Jesus says, it would be better for you, you, if any of you who have provoked or tempted or led another Christian into sin, be better for you to have that heavier millstone placed around your neck and then to cast you into the sea so that you can sink to the bottom. That's pretty consequential, isn't it? That's not the consequence he's he's talking about. Notice he says, it would be better. Now that phrase is one Greek word, somphero. It would be somphero. In other words, it would be more profitable for you. It would be more advantageous for you to have a millstone put around your neck and for you to be drowned in the sea than what's going to come for you. Yikes. If you've tempted another believer to sin, it's more advantageous for you to put a millstone around your neck and to be drowned in the sea. Now for the Jews, drowning, death by drowning, was more horrifying than the Roman punishment of crucifixion. Think about that. Is there anything more horrifying than crucifixion to the Jewish person? Yes, drowning. They didn't want to drown. And the weight of this millstone and the depth of the sea amplifies the intensity of this judgment. Nonetheless, such severe judgment is an act of mercy compared to the eternal consequence that is stored up for you who tempt others to sin. What's going on in the minds of Peter, James, and John, as well as the other nine? They had been engaging in a heated debate over who was greatest in God's kingdom. And Peter, James, and John had been proudly boasting of their great privilege of seeing the transfiguration. We saw Moses, we saw Elijah, we saw Jesus in his glorified form, and you can't even cast a demon out of a child. And there's the other nine bemoaning their inability to cast out a demon. And they're now provoked to envy, jealousy, and anger. You see, the three not only sinned in their pride, but they sinned in provoking the others to jealousy, to anger, to envy. They boasted of their privilege, and they enticed others to sin. They incited them to sin. And that's why Jesus says, Can you imagine Jesus sitting there teaching them, preaching, and pointing to Peter, James, and John and saying it would be better for the three of you to have a millstone put around your neck and for you to be cast into the sea than for you to face the eternal consequence of what's coming for your actions. Think he had their attention? I think he did. His following words had to be haunting. A particular judgment is set aside for those who cause God's children to sin. He says, woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. And woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. Now, the downside of Scripture is that we, don't, we can't physically see it. So we have to use what I like to call sanctified imagination. Okay? Picture yourself... In that room, there's Jesus sitting there, the child sitting on his lap, there's the disciples gathered around him. 
He's, all of what Jesus is saying is a response to their question or their argument, their debate over who's the best, who's the greatest. And he says, that man, Peter, that man, John, and that man, James. See, that word, that, points to a particular person or persons. Peter, James, John, woe to you. Because the stumbling block came through you. Now, his warning about stumbling blocks is based upon two Hebrew scriptures. Leviticus 19.40 and Ezekiel 18.30. Leviticus 19.14 says, Do not curse a deaf man, nor place a stumbling block before the blind. Now, that's a general principle there, forbidding us from placing a stumbling block before an at-risk individual. Okay? You don't do that. And then in Ezekiel 18.30, Yahweh says, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, each according to his conduct, Repent and turn away from your trans- all your transgressions so that iniquity may not become a stumbling block to you. Now, yes, in general, we're not to put any kind of stumbling block before an at-risk person, but now here in particular, iniquity or sin is viewed as a stumbling block. Don't put a sin before another person. Jesus is warning you and I that if we entice others to sin, we are placing a stumbling block in their path. And to those who attempt a believer to sin, Jesus says, Whoa! Why? This is an interjection of grief. It's an indignation from which we get the modern Yiddish term, Oy vey. That's what Oy vey means. Woe is me, or woe is you. Oy vey. When used by a prophet... Oivei, or the woe, is a pronouncement of judgment against sin. We call these in the Old Testament in the Hebrew Scriptures, woe oracles. Woe oracles. Now the woe oracles are based upon the curses found in God's law. I want to give you an example from the book of Micah chapter 2. You can turn over there if you'd like. Micah chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. I want to give you an illustration of what a woe oracle looks like. So that when we come back here to Matthew 18, you're going to see that's exactly what Jesus just does, just did, or is about to do. So, the four steps. Number one, you announce the woe. Number two, you announce who the woe uh, uh, is against or described. Number three, you give the charges or reason for the woe. And then number four, you outline the punishment. Okay? Micah chapter 2. First... The woe is announced. Look at verse chapter one, verse yeah, chapter two, verse one of Micah. Woe. Okay, there's the announcement of the woe oracle. Go on to the rest of verse one. Says, "Those who scheme iniquity, who work out evil on their beds." So the woe is now number two. It is announced against or discord a person. The person is described. And that's what we see here. Those who scheme iniquity. Then number three, verse two. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They rob a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. The charges or the reason for the woe were given. So we've got the announcement of the woe. We have the description of the person of who it's against. We have the charges then given. And then number four, the fourth step of the woe, is to announce the punishment for the crime. Look at Micah chapter 2 and verse 3. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am planning against this family a calamity from which you cannot remove your necks, and you will not walk haughtily, for it will be an evil time. There's the punishment. I am going to bring a calamity upon these people. 
for their crime. Now, Matthew chapter 18, Jesus follows that same four-step pattern. First, He announces the woe. Twice He announces it. Woe to the world and woe to that man. Then, second, He identifies the persons upon whom the woe is announced. First, it's announced upon who? The world. And then a second woe is announced against who? That man. Now, here, the word world, cosmos, refers to the uh, system of ungodliness under Satan's control. Okay, So he's not talking about the earth as the planet, but he's talking about the system of ungodliness that's opposed to God and operated under the uh, control of Satan. But who is that man? That man refers to another believer. That's who Jesus is preaching to, believers. Woe to the believer who causes his brother or sister to sin. Third, Jesus reveals the reason for the announced woe. He announces a woe against the world because of what? Of its stumbling blocks. Okay? And then he announces the woe against the believer, against that man through whom some stumbling block comes. Again, what's a stumbling block? It's an enticement or temptation to sin. Regarding the temptation of sin that comes from the world, Jesus says here, it's inevitable that stumbling blocks come. Do not be surprised when temptations to sin come from the world. The world is a system of ungodliness under, opposed to God and under the control of Satan. So don't be surprised when temptation comes from the world. We ought to expect it. But sadly, we have to beware that some stumbling blocks, some enticements to sin, some temptations to sin are going to come from our fellow believers. And that's the charge he's laying out. And then we need the fourth step. We need the punishment. Well, number four, Jesus declares the punishment for enticing believers to sin. Look at verse 6. It would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Again, there's that comparative term. It would be better. It would be better for them. You see, those who entice others to sin have a punishment far worse than being drowned in the depths of the sea. Your punishment will be eternal fire or fiery hell as revealed in verses 8 and 9. We get to verses 8 and 9, we're going to see the consequence, the punishment that's coming. I'll tell you, one way to guard against sin is to remember the consequence. If you go on sinning, if you go on enticing others to sin, your punishment is going to be this eternal fire. Now, that's not hell. That's the lake of fire. We're going to get more into that in a moment when we get to verse 8 and 9. We've got to finish up 6 and 7 first. Back in Matthew chapter 13, verses 41 and 42, Jesus warned this. He said, The Son of Man is going to send forth His angels, and they're going to gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks. Notice that? Going to gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks, and those who commit lawlessness, and going to throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, in Matthew 13, the word stumbling blocks is scandalon, which is the noun form of the verb scandalizo, caused to stumble. Now, in the context of Matthew 13, those stumbling blocks are quote-unquote professed believers. Probably not genuine. How can you say that, Pastor? Because a genuine believer isn't going to be cast into the lake of fire. And a genuine believer is not going to go on sinning. And a genuine believer is not going to go on tempting others to sin. 
It's not to say we couldn't sin and that we might not entice. But we're not going to go on. We're going to repent and confess and forsake it. But there coming a day in which the angels are going to be sent out to gather out of the church the false believers who have been stumbling blocks. They're in the church even right now. There's in the church of God believers who are enticing other believers to sin. And unless you repent, if that describes you, unless you repent, you're going to face God's wrath. And you're going to be judged with the eternal fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so, believer, it behooves you and I to guard ourselves against sin by remembering the consequence. Divine judgment. And that ought to not only keep you from sin, but it ought to keep you from tempting others or enticing others to sin. Zechariah 2.8, Yahweh says, After glory He has sent me against the nations which plunder you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. What is the apple of the eye? It's the cornea. Okay? So in the Old Testament, you read that phrase, the apple of the eye. It's referring to the cornea of the eye. Now, anyone who has ever scratched their cornea understands how susceptible it is. Scratching your cornea can... Uh, when you scratch the cornea, you end up with intense pain and irritation. Okay? Well, God views His children as if they're the cornea of His eye. And so to harm one of His children is the equivalent of poking God in the eye. Now, if I asked for a razor hand, I don't think anybody would. With common sense, you wouldn't. But it said, listen, who wants to poke God in the eye? Nobody's going to say, I want to. Nobody would even think of poking God in the eye. I don't want to cause God irritation and pain. Well, let me tell you something. When you harm one of his children, when you harm one of his spiritual children, his adopted children, that's a fellow believer in Christ, by enticing them to sin, you have poked God in the eye. And when you poke God in the eye, he's coming for you. He's coming for you with divine judgment. You say, well, I wouldn't want to poke God in the eye. Nobody in their right mind would. So therefore, how you treat one another is immensely important to God. We need to consider in what way we could possibly be stumbling blocks to each other. First, you might be a stumbling block to somebody else when you directly tempt them to sin. Now, initially, you hear directly tempting someone to sin, and you think, well, I've never encouraged somebody to do something contrary to God's Word. Okay. But that's not the only means by which you may be directly tempting them to sin. You see, when you tolerate a sin, or when you ignore their sin, you are also guilty of being involved in direct temptation. You see them doing something that's wrong and you ignore it. You are a stumbling block. To the church at Pergamum, in Revelation 2, 14 to 15, Jesus says, I have a few things against you. Because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who, keep teaching, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat that things, sacrifice to idols, and to commit immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So in other words, he's saying, listen, you in the church of Pergamum, you are being stumbling blocks because you are tolerating others to teach false teaching, and you're allowing others to go on in immorality. You're a stumbling block. To the Thyatira church in Revelation 2.20, he says, I have this against you. 
You tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess but teaches and leads my bondservants astray so they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. So friend, you may not have directly enticed someone to sin. Oh, hey, I think you ought to lie or hey, I think you ought to steal. But if you know a brother or sister is involved in some sin or immorality and you say nothing to them then you are guilty of being the stumbling block in their life, according to Jesus. Is there any believer you know that's involved in sin or immorality, and you've said nothing? You're a stumbling block to them. Second, you can cause another believer to stumble when you indirectly tempt them to sin. Paul warned parents in Ephesians 6.4, Do not provoke your children to wrath but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now that Greek verb there, paragorizo, provoke to wrath, provoke to anger, means to drive a child to exasperation, resentment, or unjust anger. You say, well, how does a parent do that? Well, demonstrate favoritism. You'll drive one child for sure to anger. Uh, Make unreasonable demands of a child. Uh, Be overly critical of your child patronize your child, domineer your child, neglect your child, spoil your child. All examples of how you could possibly provoke your child to some sinful behavior. Listen, isn't that exactly what Peter, James, and John did? They weren't parents, but they provoked the other disciples to envy and jealousy. They indirectly tempted them to sin. What have you done or how have you behaved towards another believer that's resulted in them engaging in a sin? You know, I'll be honest, I don't think we even take the time to consider how our actions or words might actually result in somebody else sinning. But you're being a stumbling block when it does. Third, you might cause another believer to stumble by being a poor example. You know, people follow the example set before them. Now, how many parents, don't raise your hand please, How many parents have told their children, do what I say, not what I do? That's terrible parenting. Okay? Listen, they learn by your example more than what comes out of your mouth. Okay? 1 Timothy 4.2, Paul said to Timothy, In speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity, show yourself an example. What kind of an example have you set? You know, if you default as a believer to, well, they should do what I say and not what I do, You missed the point. You're a stumbling block. Listen, I don't care. You can talk all the sound doctrine and theology you want, but if your example doesn't line up, you're a stumbling block to another believer. Number four, you can cause a believer to stumble by causing them to violate their conscience. You know, these things fall under the the heading of Christian liberty. Many things in, in the world that the Scripture does not specifically give us a book, chapter, and verse for. Okay? Uh, such an issue, for example, would be somebody has a personal conviction not to eat meat. But another believer comes along and pressures them. I'll go ahead and eat the meat. There's nothing wrong with it. Just go ahead and eat it. They're, 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 you know, the Bible doesn't say you can't. Just go and do it. So the second believer does it. But then they become guilty of violating their conscience. Guess what? You are guilty of being a stumbling block. You caused them to violate their conscience. But pastor, it's not a sin. But the problem is for them it was. Because it was an issue of personal conviction. 
You cannot use your Christian liberty as a means of how everybody else ought to behave and live. And when you do, you're guilty of being a stumbling block. Paul says in Romans 14, 2 to 3 and 14 to 16, One person has faith that he can eat all things, but another eats vegetables only. The one who eats does, should not have contempt for the one who doesn't eat. And the one who doesn't eat isn't to judge the one who eats, because God has accepted them both. Okay? God accepts meat eaters and vegetarians and vegans and the like. Determine this. Do not put an obstacle or stumbling block in another brother's way. I am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Okay, in other words, meat and, and vegetables aren't clean or unclean. But to him who thinks if they, that they are, to him it's unclean. So if this brother or sister is convinced that eating meat is wrong, then for them it is. If because of food your brother is hurt, if you hurt your brother because of his conviction on food, you are no longer working according to love, you are a stumbling block. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. So if you urge a believer to sin, if you tolerate sin, if you provoke others to sin, if you set a poor example, if you misuse your Christian liberty, you're a stumbling block. Now by that standard, how many of us are guilty of being stumbling blocks? In Revelation 2.16, Jesus said to the church of Pergamum, Therefore repent or else. If you are enticing others to sin regardless of the manner, I challenge you to forsake it and repent of your wickedness because the judge is standing at the door. Repent before it's too late. If you continue being a stumbling block, you are going to find yourself on the receiving end of divine judgment and you are going to be cast into the lake of fire. And so I would urge you, warn you, to heed the words of Hebrews 10.24, Consider, think, how to stimulate one another, not to sin, but to good works and love. Now let's wrap it up in verse 8 and 9. If your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, plug it out and throw it from you. Better to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast in the fiery hell. Here's the third means of guarding against sin. You've got to remove the cause. We guard against sin not only by receiving others as Christ or remembering the consequence, but we guard against sin by removing the cause. You've got to take radical steps to be victorious over sin and to keep yourself from being a stumbling block to another. Now in the context here, the hand, the foot, and the eye are symbolic of the body parts that sin or that would cause others to sin. Where did Jesus get this radical idea? Proverbs 6, 16 and 19. There are six things which the Lord hates, yea, seven are an abomination. Haughty what? Eyes. Lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. Heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that run rapidly to evil. A false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among his brothers. Now, just so we're clear, Jesus is not promoting self mutilation. Judaism abhorred self mutilation. Jesus is using hyperbole here, a common trope in rabbinic teaching, to drive home how terrible sin is and how seriousness or how serious eternal damnation is. His point is this. Whatever is in you that's causing you to sin has to be excised. It has to be eliminated. And by the way, we know this is hyperbole 
because you can cut out your eye all day, or you can cut off your hand all day, you cut off your foot all day, remove your eye all day, and it won't remove the sin. Because the sin's internal, okay? You can be blind and disabled and still have impure thoughts. Tasker said this, Jesus expressing in metaphorical language the all-important truth that a limited but morally healthy life is better than a wider life that is morally depraved. Now I want you to look at these four actions. Cause you to stumble, cut it off, pluck it out, and throw it from you. So if there's something in your life that causes you to stumble, that scandalizes you, that causes you to sin, you need to get rid of it. What is more scandalous in your life than something causing you to sin or causing you to cause someone else to sin? The second and third action, cut it off and pluck it out. They're parallel. Cut it out means break it off. Ecopto. Cut it off like a branch on a tree. Pluck it out. Exerio. Extract it. Remove it by force. You need to undertake radical actions to deal with whatever is causing you to sin. And it's a heart matter, so the surgery needs to begin on the heart. And then notice the fourth action. Throw it from you, below. Cast it away, get rid of it, throw it in the trash. Whatever's in your life causing you to sin, causing you to cause someone else to sin, remove it. Because Jesus said it is better for you to enter life crippled or lame or with one eye. What life? Eternal life. It is better to go into God's kingdom maimed or blind than to go someplace else. Again, he's using that hyperbole to make a point. You want to get into the kingdom of heaven? You want to get into eternal life? Repentance requires forsaking sin, not continuing in sin. And forsaking sin means cutting out, throwing out, taking, removing by force anything in your life that's causing you to sin. Now, what happens if you don't? And believer, listen, we all struggle with sin. But you best always be struggling and striving against sin. Do whatever is necessary to overcome it. Because listen to what Jesus says. If you don't take drastic action against sin, you will be cast into the eternal fire, or what, he, what is translated here as the fiery hell. Now, folks, I want to take a moment... And I want to deal with something very serious here that is often misunderstood in the church. And that is the difference between hell and the lake of fire. And folks, I'm going to present a very serious doctrine. And I want you to listen very carefully to it. Because for a long time now, for a great while, I've been preaching and teaching and going through some very difficult things for our daily Christian life. And I'm not just doing that because we got an hour or so to fill. I'm doing it because once a week we're taking a time to warn you. And here's why we're warning you. Because if we don't take these radical steps and live the life we're called to live, we are on a destination course to the lake of fire. And I'm going to explain to you here in a moment what the lake of fire is and why you don't want any parts of it. You say believers could end up in the... Listen, there's going to be a lot of believers in the lake of fire. What? Who's Jesus preaching to? Believers. And guess what? One of the twelve ended up in the lake of fire, didn't he? Judas Iscariot. He heard all Jesus had to say and preach. Yet he never genuinely repented and forsook any of it. Oh, he put on the works. He put on the motions. He had his Halloween mask on. 
Fooled everybody else. But at the end of the day, the fool was him. And he ended up in the lake of fire. Now in verse 9, the word hell there. You all see it there, fiery hell. It is the Greek word Gehenna, which is the Grecianized form of the Hebrew term Gehenom. Gehenom. Now Gehenom translates as the valley of the son of Hinnom. The valley of the son of Hinnom. Located south of Jerusalem, this valley was the place where they committed child sacrifice. Later, the valley became the city dump, where dead animals and trash were burned continuously. Now, during the intertestamental period, that's the period between the Old and the New Testament, about 400 years, the Jews associated the valley of Hinnom with the place of, of fiery judgment. Okay? They looked at this place and they said, man, it, it burns day and night, it's never gone out. And that is a great picture of eternal fiery judgment. I want to read to you three passages from three Jewish writings from that time period. The first one says this, The pit of torment will appear, and opposite shall be the place of rest. And the furnace of Gehenna shall be disclosed, and the opposite is the paradise of delight. So they saw two, two roads, two destinies. You're either going to end up in paradise, or you're going to end up in Gehenna. Fiery judgment. Another writing said, Woe to the nations that rise up against my people. The Lord Almighty will take vengeance on them in the day of judgment. He will send fire and worms into their flesh, and they will weep in pain forever. So fire and worms, fire and maggots, were a simile during this period for fire eternal judgment. Again, you're looking at the garbage dump, and you see the flames. You also see the maggots or the worms. One final one, humble yourself for the punishment of the ungodly is fire and worms. So here comes Jesus and he takes that simile, he takes that illustration from the valley of Hinnom, or the sons of Hinnom, Gehenom, Gehenna, and he says, look, there's Gehenna. You can all see it, you can all smell it. You've seen the flame, you've seen the worms. That is what's waiting for you and it's called the lake of fire. And so he calls it Gehenna. But he's not talking about hell. When he talks about hell, he uses the Greek word Hades. Hades. Now, unless you have a Strong's Concordance every time you're reading through the New Testament, unfortunately, in most English translations, you're only going to see it translated as hell. But if it's Hades, it's hell. If it's Gehenna, it's lake of fire. Listen, Hades is simply a waiting place. Now, it's a place of torment, don't get me wrong, but it's a waiting place. If you're in hell because you're unregenerate, you're waiting for the great white throne judgment. But then there's Gehenna, which is the place of eternal fiery judgment, the lake of fire. It is a place that receives both the soul and the body. Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. Fear Him who will destroy both your soul and body in Gehenna, in the lake of fire. You see, when you die, your body returns to dust. Your soul and spirit's going one place or the other. It's going to paradise or heaven, or it's going into hell to await judgment and then the lake of fire, Gehenna. You're not eternally going to spend your eternity. You're not going to spend your eternity in hell. You're only going to spend a short time in hell. You will spend an eternity in the lake of fire. Now you say, well, how do you know they're two separate places? Revelation 20:13. The sea gave up its dead. Death and Hades, or hell, gave up its dead, and they were judged. The bodies of the unregenerate, you see, my friends, at the great white throne, all the dead in hell are going to be resurrected and given new bodies. 
Then they're going to stand at the great white throne. And now listen to Revelation 20, verse 14 and 15. Death and hell will be thrown into the lake of fire. Now hell cannot be the lake of fire because you can't throw something into itself. Hell is a separate place. It's going to be emptied and then it's going to be thrown in the lake of fire. And then all the people who were in hell who now have their resurrected bodies, they're going to be cast into the lake of fire. And many believers are going to be in the lake of fire because they believed but never repented. Now, Pastor, how can I possibly know the difference? I don't have a Strong's in front of me when I'm reading. Well, let me give you three rules that you can use to help you determine in the New Testament in particular whether you're referring to hell or the lake of fire. Number one, if there's a future judgment at the end of the age, it's the lake of fire. Okay? So you're reading a text and you see future judgment, end of the age, you know you're dealing with the lake of fire. If angels are involved, you're dealing with the lake of fire. Angels are not involved in hell, by the way. But isn't hell created for the devil and his angels? Listen, i give you a little homework. Go look up that verse. And then get your strongs out and look up what the Greek word is behind hell. It's not Hades. Guess what? It's Gehenna. The lake of fire was created for the devil and his angels. And number three, if it's eternal fire, it's referring to the lake of fire. Okay? Hell is not eternal. But pastor, hell is eternal. Didn't you just see what happened to hell? Hell got thrown into. Okay? Hell had a start and end. Lake of fire is ongoing. In Matthew 8, 12, Jesus says that the sons of the kingdom are going to be cast out in outer darkness. Children of the kingdom. There are going to be people in the kingdom of heaven, in the kingdom of God, in its present form who call themselves children, who call themselves believers, who are going to be cast into the lake of fire, what is called here is outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. See, the lake of fire is outer darkness. It is so far from the light, you can't see anything. I tell you, there is nothing more disorienting than such great darkness where you cannot see anything. And it will also be a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. The torment is insoluble. Listen, have you ever had any kind of pain you wanted to beat your head into the wall with? Sure. Well, think about that times 10 forever. This is serious business, folks. I'm taking the time to, go to, to scare you into the lake of fire so that you don't want to go to the lake of fire, so that you will take the steps today to ensure that your repentance is genuine. Let me give you the corollary passage in Mark 9. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. Better to go into eternal life crippled than having two hands and go into hell, into the unquenchable fire where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. By the way, people say, oh, pastor, that's just, that, that's symbolic. No, look at the term here, fire. It is the usual Greek term for literal physical fire. This isn't some symbol. This is a very real fire that burns forever. It is endless. And that is the destiny of all even professed believers who do not genuinely repent. It's a place where their worm does not die. You ever wondered what that worm is? Well, remember, Valley of Hinnom, maggots. Your maggot will not die. Now, what's your maggot? Notice that. Uh, you know, it's not the worm, it's their worm. It's a personal pronoun. Each and every one of you has a worm that will not die while you're there in the lake of fire. 
That word or that, mag, that for worm or maggot is something that feeds on dead flesh. It's an allusion to the maggot in each and every one of you. Each and every one of us in this room has a worm living inside of us. A maggot living inside of us. Feeding on our flesh. It's called our conscience. Reverend Plumtree said this, All Christian thinkers have seen in the gnawing worm the anguish of an endless remorse, the memory of past sin. Matthew Henry says, The reflection and reproaches of your own conscience are the worm that does not die. It will cleave to your damned soul as worms do a dead body. It will prey upon it. It will never leave it. Damned sinners will be to eternity accusing, condemning, upbraiding themselves with their own follies. Can you imagine for all eternity not only being tormented physically in a flame, but being emotionally and mentally tormented by every sin you've ever done playing itself over and over and over in an endless loop? Your conscience will not die. It will gnaw at you. It will remind you of every sin. Yeah, we love to go through this life and brush things under the carpet. Not then. Every person is going to be physically and mentally tormented. So what are you going to do with it? Folks, this lake of fire is going to take central theme in his final sermon. His whole point in Matthew is about getting us to live as kingdom citizens and kingdom servants and behaving as such. If you're not valuing the things that a kingdom servant or a kingdom citizen should value, his point is you're heading for the lake of fire. We may struggle with sin, but if you're genuine, what sets you apart from them who are in name only is you mourn over your sin. Nothing better in this day and age than to feel guilt and remorse over sin that drives us to repentance. I mean, none of us like guilt and remorse, but let me tell you something. Better to live with guilt and remorse in this life than in the life to come. Amen? Amen. Some of you may be better off dead. Bet you never think a preacher would ever tell you that. That's what Jesus said. Listen, if you can't stop sinning and you can't stop causing others to sin, you're better off dead. Because if you keep it up, you're going to the lake of fire. We need to heed these serious warnings here about how our sin is serious in our own lives, but also our responsibility to not cause others to stumble. You're going to face eternal damnation in the lake of fire if you go on sinning, if you go on causing others to sin, if you go on refusing to repent. I challenge you, guard against sin. Remove the cause, remember the consequence, and receive others as Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we come before you, through our matchless Savior, we come and plead with you. Forgive us. Father, if there's some sin in our life that's raining, help us. Get, make us victorious over it. Help us to strive against it. Help us to forsake it and remove anything in our life that is leading us to it. And oh, Father God, I pray if by chance we have been guilty of leading others into sin, of enticing others to sin, maybe not directly but indirectly, Father, I pray, Father, forgive us and help us to go and rescue them. Lord, we don't want to wake up one day in the lake of fire and realize that we fooled ourselves. Oh Lord, help us to know today that the lake is real and the judgment is coming unless we repent. It's not enough to be a believer in name only. We have to be genuine, Lord, because we're repenting of our sins. And so I pray that if the Spirit is truly in us, 
that, Lord, Your Spirit would prompt us and prick us to confess and forsake all of those things. And Lord, if it's radical action we must take, then give us that power from Your Spirit to take the radical step to remove whatever is in our life that is causing us to stumble or causing us to be a stumbling block. Lord, I pray that You'd keep us from that day of damnation. Have mercy on our souls. And we pray, Lord, this and ask that You would teach us each and every day until your kingdom comes for us. Amen.